0: All right, so today we have Dr. Michael with us. He is a anesthesiologist who's been in private practice for 36 years. And we're very glad that you came and joined us today, Michael. Thank you. And so um, maybe just to start, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a little bit about your background and your path to getting to where you are today.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to talk about it. Uh, I was... Influenced to be a physician when I was very young, but it took me quite a while to put the pieces of the puzzle together. For a long time, I just said, I've always wanted to be a doctor. I've always wanted to be a doctor. Nobody in my family was ever a physician, and uh, my mother was a teacher before that. Nobody else had finished college. And to put it all into perspective, I'll just kind of tell you how I, chronologically, it makes more sense to explain it that way. When I was seven years old, I have a very good memory, by the way, (laughs) when I was seven years old, uh, my father's oldest brother, um, who was in the United States Navy, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, he came to Baltimore from California because their younger brother was getting married, so I was seven years old at the time, and back when you could go to the airport and watch the people, the passengers get off the planes, I'm out there with my Father and this six foot two uh, gentleman in a naval dress uniform and a hat walks down the steps and he goes, "Michael, this is Uncle Dave." And I was like, "Oh, it's pretty uh, imposing in a good way with the you know the uniform and his smile and he picked me up and gave me a hug and uh, just so thrilled to to meet somebody that was. Um, A, my father's brother, because I I had a younger sister, so I didn't have a brother. And he was just such a a role model for me in that, you know, 10 minutes. And I'll never forget, the same afternoon we were sitting in our uh, living room on on the sofa, and he said to me, so what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I looked at him, and I said, I want to be in the Navy like you. (laughs) Very impressionable. And he looked at me and goes, no, you don't want to do what I do. And I said, why not? He said, well, because I I was in the war, and I was a corpsman, I was a medic, and uh, while I loved what I did, the people who really made a difference were the doctors. The doctors were saving people's lives. And like I said, I don't think I put that together as something so important in my formative years until probably a decade or two, probably two decades later. But be that out as it may, um, I found myself uh, being very pulled towards the sciences after that. Uh, we had a World Book Encyclopedia in my bedroom, and I was always reading it at nighttime if I couldn't fall asleep. I'll never forget watching on television um, an identical twin gave a kidney transplant to his brother. This is with black and white television. This is way before transplants were what they are now and I was just mesmerized and from that client I don't want to say that day but from that time in my life I just said that's what I want to do there was no other path that I even considered and so I graduated high school uh, went to college finished a semester early and um, had the good fortune of having the time off and I Went to Europe uh, for six months and went to medical school, finished that. And I remember people saying to me, well, what are you going to do if you don't get into medical school? It's hard to get into. And I just said, that's not really an option for me. I'm I'm getting in. I don't, I just, I wouldn't say I was boastful. I was just kind of self-confident to the point where I knew this is what I was going to do. And I wasn't going to really let... Anything get in my way? It was to me. It was just like putting one foot in front of another, and one foot in another front, of, one foot in front of another. In other words, college, high school, college, you know, medical school. That was going to be my path. And I had great grades. I uh, was a good student, and it happened, sort of the way I wanted it to happen. Uh, I started out doing internal medicine as a resident, and towards the end of it, I realized. Uh, when you had a clinic day and you saw your patients uh, who you discharged from the hospital, being in a city hospital in Baltimore, uh, the day that I didn't like the most was the clinic day. And I realized, well, this is what doctors do, see patients all day in an office. And back then there were no hospitalists or intensivists. So if you were in private practice, you got up in the morning, went to the hospital, saw your patients, then you went to your office, then you'd go back to the hospital. And it's kind of a, a long day. And a lot of these guys who were friends of my parents, who I knew, were they worked hard and um, they didn't complain about it. But I just knew they had it was a long it was a long uh, dedicated lifestyle for them. And towards the end of my internal medicine residency, I realized this isn't what I want to do, and I was moving to um, Eastern Long Island and knew I couldn't go into private practice because nobody knew who I was. So I did a couple of extra electives in my third year as a resident, and I did a month of anesthesiology and fell in love with it. And so I pursued a residency and completed that, became board certified and got a job on Long Island in a medium-sized community hospital, which I loved. Loved going to work every day. Um, when my life circumstances changed, I moved to Denver, Colorado. I was working in Long Island for 17 years. Uh, worked in a private practice hospital environment in Denver, Colorado for 18 years. I was never in a teaching hospital where you had like an exclusive teaching role for residents. I enjoyed it, but I enjoyed doing my own cases more. And a year and a half ago, I moved here to... Palm Desert and I'm in a uh, not-for-profit hospital in a kind of a soft landing looking towards easing in retirement but still being able to do what I do um, on a part-time basis so I don't have to work nights or weekends because I think I've done enough of that. Hmm. I've seen a lot of things and learned a lot of things and still Mm -hmm. enjoy what I do every day. What brought you west? When I was a teenager growing up in Maryland, I used to ski at Little Ant Hills in Pennsylvania. <laughs> okay. And um, in Christmas break in medical school one year, a friend of mine and I caught a red eye from Baltimore to uh, Stapleton, the old Stapleton Airport in Colorado, and flew to Steamboat Springs and spent the week in Steamboat. And I just said, one day I'm going to move here. This is the Mm -hmm. most glorious place on earth. Wow. Yeah. And when my um, personal situation allowed me to do it, I moved to Denver. And that's where I was kind of like born again. I I met the right person. I was in a great environment uh, professionally and... I still am. I just relocated because my wife and I are kind of tired of the winter cold. And like I said, I was looking into someplace to ease into a uh, a retirement track. Mm, Nice.
2: Michael, what have you um, sort of in your trajectory in medicine, um, what have been really significant shifts that you've observed observed in the practice of medicine and then how have you shifted
1: as well that's a great question I started my internal medicine, medicine residency in 1980 and at the University of Maryland hospital in Baltimore and you were there all the time you worked you were on call every third night meaning you stayed in the hospital And you work the next day. It was just that's just the way it was. This is before residency. uh, What's what I'm looking for? Um, Limits limits on how many hours you go work on a given day in a given week. Mm -hmm. And up until 1976, just four years before I started, uh, you were expected to work every other night. So I was just a couple years after they went from every other night to every third night. Again, working the next day. I did that for three years, um, but that's that was the culture. That was what was ex- expected of everybody who wanted to, to be a physician. Neurosurgery was seven years. Uh, general surgery is five years. Uh, everyone knew that it was an incredible personal lifestyle sacrifice. I don't think anybody would say to you, I didn't go into the size wide open because it's, that would be, that would not be a true statement. I don't think people realized um, what that does to you. You know, when mm-hmm. you're 21, 22, 23, you're like, I can do anything. And you, you, when you finish it, you're finished it. But looking back, you're not unscathed. It's definitely mm-hmm. leaves scars. Um, some you may not realize, some you might. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you a great example. So I did my internal medicine residency for three years. Worked every third night. Next day, drudging through uh, a day where you may not—you may have been up all night. I'll never forget one day I was writing in a patient's chart. Um, I have to remember to take the garbage out in the morning instead of what I'm supposed to write because I was just delirious of sleep deprived. Uh, back then, you could tear the piece of paper up and you know just start over. <laughs> But I, I never forgot that. And I've never been a night person. Even in college, I wasn't the kind of person who would stay up all night doing partying or, or this or that. By 2 or 3 o'clock, my body's just like I'm done. And so for somebody to say, oh, they were up all night and they worked the whole next day, I'm, I, I never felt like, good for you. I felt like, I don't know how you do it. Uh, but everybody's wired differently. So when I started my anesthesia residency, um, a year after I finished my internal medicine residency, it wasn't every third night, it was every fourth night. And you usually had the next day off, because that's just the way they started doing it. And since I had already done a residency, I was a couple years older than most of the people that I was, my peers, and it was a new hospital, so... Everything was kind of new and nice, and it was a nice place to work. And every once in a while, one of my colleagues would complain, like, oh, my God, I've got to... I'm going to be here again. It's every fourth night. And I looked at them and said... I <laughs> felt like one of these guys who have been through, you know, a trial by fire. I said, look, I just finished internal medicine where you worked every three nights, and you worked the next day. I don't want to hear any crap from you guys. you have it easier than I ever had. And I realized that... You know, it sounds ridiculous, like somebody from the 1930s saying, you know, we did this and we did that, and we were we walked uphill, you know, both ways to go to school and back, that kind of thing. But it's it made me realize it's all relative as far as what's, what you're used to or what you think is okay for you. And when I did my anesthesia residency, and it was every fourth night, after every third night, to me, it was, I wouldn't say it was a picnic, but it it was doable. <laughs> um, and then when I went to private practice, it was then it's like the gloves come off because you have to do whatever you're expected to do because there's no regulations. Uh, if you're in a small group and uh, somebody gets sick or somebody something happens, your plans get torn up. Even though we had you know, a call schedule and a vacation schedule, every once in a while things would go haywire. Uh, there were many, many, many nights that I was up all night uh, in private practice and usually have the next day off, but I would just go home and just crash. And next day you'd go back and do it again. When you get to a certain point in your life, your body doesn't, recover that quickly and you realize I don't want to do this anymore but I love what I do and you sort of a lot of people just keep doing it uh, I think that's what attributes to a lot of physician burnout because you feel trapped in a, a culture you feel trapped in your job You've, you have in most cases some sort of family situation where when do I see my kids when do I see my spouse uh, making plans uh, to do, to do something and having to say I can't make it, missing my kids, not not seminal events, but even stuff like you know baseball, literally, gymnastics, soccer, you miss all those things. Um, you can't make you make some of them, but the ones you can't, you you feel bad about. Um, and again, that's all part of this culture of medicine that's been around since over a hundred years. I must say it is with uh, relief that's changing. I see it very clearly in the uh, the newer generation of people who are you know in my viewpoint is private practice since I don't work in an academic practice but the people who are in, in the practice of medicine who've been doing it 10 years or less have a totally different attitude outlook. I think it's good. Um, you know, when I tell them what I've done, they're like roll their eyes and go, Oh my God. And I'm like, well, (laughs) doesn't mean it was good. It just means I survived. Um, so, and a lot of the things that you weren't allowed to talk about burnout or this or that, um, I personally know two or three colleagues that became narcotic addicts uh, when they were residents and or attendings, and from my perspective, it's kind of like a minefield. You know what's out there, and you know you hope you're not the one who steps on the mine because it's it's if your personality and your if you're wired a certain way, I could the stuff's totally accessible. It's very easy to you know, divert if you want to divert. Uh, any type of medication and and be abused, so that takes a lot of willpower also um, and to see people who invest their lives to try to give something back in a healing profession to have to see that self destruct is very painful mm-hmm. and I recognize especially now that you know now that there 's social media and instant everything. And there's a lot more research, a lot more uh, reporting that this just, this wasn't discussed 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know, it'd be like, Oh, our gossip. Oh, so-and-so isn't here anymore. He, he OD'd or he did this, or he got thrown out and it was never talked about. So I am happy to see more and more of mainstream medical journals discussing uh, physician burnout um, in general, healthcare burnout, especially with COVID. So many people, not just physicians, but nurses, nurse practitioners, anybody in the healthcare profession, if they've if they were impacted by COVID or something related to COVID, a lot of them quit. A lot of them retired early. A lot of them realized this this is they're overworked, underpaid, you know. So I'm glad it's being discussed in mainstream media because it's like you said it's it needs to be and if it's not part a is of anything is identifying the problem so until that's discussed there's no, you can't get anywhere so I'm very relieved that um I read and see articles journals actually some you know peer reviewed uh journals discussing these things
0: So, Michael, I mean, um, I think that was an incredibly elegant description of your life history and what you've gone through in this career. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. Um, I, I just wanted to share with you three statements that I heard from you. The gloves came off in private practice. I just survived. It's a... Mindfield you hope you don't step on the mind most of the physicians that I know feel this way and I just kind of wanted to follow up your statement with a question of having gone through this rather grueling profession what do you think what do you think was the toll that it took on you
1: Well, first of all, knowing that, like I said, when we first started chatting, this somehow deep down inside, this is, this is my life's calling. Um, being able to help people in a way that, um, I can say it now without sounding um, boasting, but I would have never said this 20, 30 years ago. I love what I do, and I'm good at it. Mm, And um, I really feel comfortable. It's taken me (laughs) 35 years to be able to say something like that. I've always been taught to be, you know, under the radar, quiet, kind, deferential. I'm a Leo, but I'm not the guy who has to be number one at everything. I'm the Leo that wants to do a perfect job at everything. So I could Mm -hmm. be the last guy in line, but it's going to be perfect. Doesn't matter. And that's this Leo true. understands that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I've always taken an incredible amount of pride doing what I do. I like um, I've kind of had a shell around me because I've heard so much, you know, anesthesiologists are blamed for everything that can go wrong in an OR. You have to develop a little bit of a insular shell when you're dealing with um, a lot of politics in a private practice hospital, a lot of gossip who, I mean, it's not Grey's Anatomy. I, the people aren't, you know, doing stuff on the slide in a, back, in a closet. I mean, they could be, I don't know. I'm oblivious. I would be the last person to know that what happened in, in private when I was in all the hospitals I've ever worked at. I'll usually look up in the nurses or the text or somebody's talking and go, what are you talking about? And they'll go, you didn't hear about so-and-so. I'm like, no, I do my job and go home. Um, uh, so I kind of built an insular shell around a lot of that stuff which could uh, be toxic to me. I don't think I realized I was doing it, but I did it um I realized from a very, very young part of my career that um I have a very good bedside manner. I like to talk to people, and I only have about you know five to ten minutes at the most to have a total stranger trust me worth their life and their families trust me. And um, I actually relished that. I felt that was a gift, my gift. Uh, I'm very disarming. I can look people in the eye, I'm very honest. And it's funny, when, when I was changing from internal medicine to residency, into anesthesiology, a lot of my parents' friends who I've known since I was little said, why are you going to do that? You're wasting your you're wasting your talent with you know, you're, you're such a good bedside manner, you're so good at talking to people. I said, Well, this is gonna amplify it. Instead of, you know, spending three hours with somebody, I've got five to ten minutes to convince somebody I'll take good care of them so that when I wield it, when they're being wheeled into the OR, they're not terrified. And I found, I felt that as I felt that at a young part of my career and it's just as important today as it was 36 years ago. I I actually love the pre-op interview. Um, I try to find any type of little connection with uh, a patient, like like a, if their birthday's in the same month as me, or if they're a left hander, or anything that can disarm them because they um, they're patients, but they're people just like we are, and they have families like we do, and. You know, we think about, all right, I'm going to put this person to sleep, wake them up to go to the recovery room, and that's the end of it. No, they're this day of their life, they're incredibly vulnerable. And I want to make sure that I can get them across that period of vulnerability safely and intact. I know I sound like, I'll tell this to the, the, the patients I'm interviewing, I say it. I sound like a flight attendant. Number one, my t- my number one job is your safety, <laughs> and my number two job is to give the surgeon an optimal environment to do what he or she wants to do. So they they kind of mesh like the fingers in your hand when you make a you know a sling with your fingers. So it's all part of how I approach what I do, and I I will say I don't know if it's the culture. I don't know if it's whatever, but I get complimented more here than I ever have in my entire life. It's so rewarding. Um, the techs, the nurses, the people who clean the floors, everybody, they're like, oh, we're happy we're in working with Michael today. It makes me feel so good that my energy is, dete- my good energy is detected. Um, and like I said, I... If somebody told me that 20 years ago, I'd be sort of embarrassed. Now I'm yeah. kind of like, I'm happy about it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm proud of it. I'm not boasting, but it, it's. And people say, a lot of my – the nurses in the recovery room will say, Can't you tell your colleagues how to do what you do? <laughs> <laughs> your patients wake up so good. They're not throwing up. They're not trying to do all this. And, I, and I, I always say, it's like an analogy of flying a plane. When you're on a plane, you want a smooth takeoff, you want a smooth landing. And in the between, you know that's usually pretty much on autopilot, and honesty, it's a, it's a great analogy. you know, putting somebody to sleep, the maintenance to me landing to me, waking a patient up is the most fun of what I do because I, I try to make it so it's exactly like the smoothest runway, smoothest landing,
2: so that the people
1: in the room are like, "Wow, he just he did a great job and the, And the nurses in the recovery room they don't have to worry about pain, nausea, vomiting, disoriented patients. I mean, once in a while it happens, obviously, but I would say 9 out of 10 of my patients wake up the way I want them to wake up. And um, if I was independently wealthy, I would do this for nothing. If that, it, it makes me feel so good when they say thank you in the recovery room. Um, it really, I feel that I'm blessed. Um, and that's how 36 years have gone by so fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: very, uh, I'm, I'm not saying this with any gratuitous flattery, but I'm, I am so delighted to hear you, um, feel, I don't hear boasting. I hear a deep appreciation that you have this gift. Um, and I hear how much you appreciate when it's affirmed. (laughs) Um, and, uh, I, I think that when we really cherish those gifts that we have and yours are very clear, we care for them and we use them, I think, in even more thoughtful and much more robust ways. And it's very clear that you do that. Thank you. Um, not only is it a gift that you get to give, but it's clear to me that you get to also be the recipient of it as Absolutely. well. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I'll touch on a um, kind of a little aside. Um, on Long Island, when I worked there, it was very litigious. Uh I was there 17 years, and I was involved in over 10 lawsuits. Most of them, I had nothing to do with the patient, but if somebody wasn't happy, they, it's like they throw a plate of spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. If your name's on the chart, you're sued. And um, the very first time it happened, I was probably probably within my first six, five, six years as a in private practice, and I was I was so insulted, I was so devastated. I was like, "How dare they?" You know, it's like everything you can think about an attorney is, and the whole adversarial. I mean, if, now I know it's just, it's a lot of it's a show, but they they try to unnerve you, they try to make you feel like your life is worth dirt when they interview you um, or they put you on the stand. It's it's a show. And at one point, um, I had written a little blurb about myself for the um, Suffolk County Society of Anesthesiologists and the um, attorney read what I wrote. And he goes, doctor, it's just like that. He goes, you said in, you, you write in here that You feel like you're the patient's guardian angel in the operating room. What do you mean by that? I said, I beg your pardon. He goes, what do you mean by that? I said, I meant exactly what it says. (laughs) They're asleep. They're vulnerable. I'm their guardian angel. He didn't question that after that, but it was just, (laughs) I think that was like the first time that I was eloquent about what I thought, how I felt, you know, my professional role obviously that was that was a it was an easy way for me to explain to the lay public how i feel about what i do because everybody can understand what a guardian angel is and that's that's what i am in the or i'm their guardian angel um, when you go ahead. when you tell
2: that story um i hear there's an interesting thing when we touch something that we feel very confident about and there's a calmness to it. And as you were telling it, I can imagine being in that courtroom hearing you say that because there was a calm and a grace as you reflected
1: it back to him. And he didn't have anywhere to go with it. Right. He was trying to use it as some kind of insti- you know, inflammatory or, and right. I just, it is what it is. Right. right. I'm glad. I mean, in retrospect, I'm glad he got it. <laughs> <laughs> so how can, how can you not, right?
0: So Michael, we've you and I have known each other for what about the last year and a half or so? Right. Um we're not particularly close outside of work, but right. I've but whenever we did communicate, I always felt very warm and very close to you just naturally. And um first of all, Likewise. you are you are an amazing clinician. Um secondly, on my on my last day at our place of work, um, you graciously came to my call room and you brought me a bottle of wine and we just shared a conversation together. Right. Something which um, I felt was kind of unexpected from somebody that I wasn't that close with, but the fact that you felt to do that really warmed my day and it meant a lot to me that you did that. So, um, when you say that with patients, you try to give them a certain sense of comfort and, um, hope that you're going to take care of them during surgery. I think that actually goes a very long way because if somebody goes into surgery and they're scared or they're nervous, my personal belief is the body manifests that into some reality. When they wake up, maybe they have more pain, maybe they have more nausea. you know so when you can calm them down like that it's it's a real gift. and the thing that I'm surprised by is you've gone through 36 years of sometimes punishment, ten lawsuits. How have you managed to keep this grace?
1: I think um I think I'm very, I think the, the, like I said, these patients are our cohabitors on this planet. We're all people. And we all have cares, thoughts, worries. We all share the same collective consciousness in, in certain aspects. And I feel like I'm just touching the, the edge of the, the ocean when I'm dipping my foot in metaphorically to to, to do what I'm doing. Uh, another thing I do a lot, not often, but when I feel it's appropriate, like if a patient says to me, you know, take good care of my so-and-so. Let's say it's a um it's well I, let's say if it's a man in the bed and his spouse is a woman and she says, Take good care of my husband. And, I, and you know I'll say, "I will. I have a spouse also, something that they can relate to, even if it's something so simple. Um, and if it's somebody who gets a little emotional, um, um, if the person's in the chair, I'll just stand up, I'll ask him to stand up, and I'll give him a hug. I'll actually give him a hug. And I'll say, "I know when I... And I or if, if it's somebody's child or somebody's parent, I'll say, "I have a kid, I have a parent." I know what you're feeling, and um, you're going to, you will take good care of so and so. I don't promise them anything. I just say, you know, I want to make them feel my energy. I want them to know that when they kiss or hug the person who's going to the room, they're relaxed a teeny bit. They're a little less anxious. Uh, They're a little bit more, they can exhale. You know, because I know how, like you said, the, this this visceral uh, release of hormones definitely has to have some effect somewhere. Yeah. And not just on the patient, on the family as well. Wow. And I, I want them to know that when they're sitting in the waiting room, that their last memory was this guy cares about my so and so, and I'm happy that my so and so is in good hands. Hmm. It means a lot. And I really feed, I feed off of that. Wow. That's my addiction.
0: <laughs> I think that uh, level of humanity and connection is such an incredibly powerful force. And the fact that you have the ability to maintain that when so many would, would be jaded, I think just speaks volumes to who, who, to who you are.
1: I think one of the reasons, to, when you mentioned that I came in to see you on your last day, I'm at the point in my life where my professional career, I should say, where I know a lot of what I have learned is not in a book. You can't read it. Yeah. Um, and I would love the opportunity to give, to pay it forward and to advise or have a lot of pearls, however, you know, however we like to say it, to people who are uh, younger, starting out. Give them some, not necessarily advice, but just some things that, stuff that I kind of figured out the hard way, <laughs> uh, trial and error, and just the way, like we've, some of the things we've talked about, how I've managed to, to do this and still do it well and enjoy it, um, to pass these things along because I think they're, value, I think they're invaluable. Uh, and I'm really happy to have this opportunity to just talk about it.
0: You know, Michael, um, there are some days where um I just feel like I'm just ground down to the bone, and maybe it's like seven o'clock at night now, and I have my next hip fracture patient with a list of forty comorbidities, and I'm just like, oh man, like I how like I just have to push through and just get and get through this next case, and right when I feel like. I'm just completely burned out. The thing that renews my spirit is my connection with the patient. Sometimes all it takes is just this human connection, a thank you, or a sense of vulnerability from the patient, them trusting you, and me seeing that, and feeling that, and recognizing that this is not just some problem that I'm going to fix, but this is a human being who has people that love them, right? who's trusting me today, and I need to be present. And I think this gift that you speak of, you know, so I would love to talk about that a little bit more. Um, when, I, when I talk to some of my colleagues, maybe not in our specialty, um, who say, you know, I have a census of 20 patients, I have to deal with 10,000 different problems, I have to deal with Consults and notes and dispo and finding a place for them to go and families and I'm just I feel like I'm drowning. What what would be your advice to somebody in that position who feels like they're just clinically getting drowned and they feel like they're losing that sense of humanity in this practice of medicine?
1: Go into anesthesia. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All kidding. That was the number one. That was one of the reasons I went into this. Um, but I hear you there are, look, I'm human. There are, there are many, many, many days, afternoons where you're like, oh my God, I got another one to do. This is like, this is, this is not a push. This is going to, I'll get home and be exhausted. Um, I have an amazing life partner who totally understands what I do and she could not be more gracious about respecting what I do and giving me the most incredible, positive, um, support for, for what I do so that I never feel like I don't have to when I turn the engine off in the car I walk in the house I don't have to exhale and go uh oh what am I going to be running into today I did that was a former life which is why I got out of it um, and that was horrible because I, I would expend all my energy work and then go home and have to do it all over again so uh, I'm lucky now but to answer your question, I don't think there's a, a magic answer. I, th- I think the um, overlaying of so many responsibilities in, in clinical practice has gotten so difficult that it's really changed a lot of the way that um, people have to practice medicine. It's, it's volume-based now. Um, And that's, it's not good. I kind of, I think I recognized a long time ago that I just wasn't going to work for me. One patient at a time works for me. Um, And a lot of the people who I had as role models growing up who were in private practice or surgery or, or in medicine, they're, they're retired or not here anymore. And I don't know how a lot of these guys do it and women. I mean, you can tell they they come into the OR. They're all flummoxed. They, most people who work in an OR who are in a surgical subspecialty are there because they love what they're doing. And they all will say to you, if not openly, but they'll say to you, it's covertly or somehow I have to be in the office because that's how I get patients in the operating room. You know, if they could just operate, they'd be happy. But all that other stuff, and some of them are, have good bedside manners, but as you know, a lot of them don't. <laughs> and, you know, the surgeons who are fantastic, some of them are, are jerky, or they're. but I always, you know, my wife and I have these discussions, and I'll say, look, I didn't have to go home to that guy or woman. I just have to, you know, deal with them. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that they know what they're doing and they do a good job. and But... You brought up a really good point because a lot of the younger generation of healthcare professionals no matter what they are nurses PAs and MDs I don't think they have I can't speak for them but I get the general impression I don't think they have the the pressure that I did or and the generation before me I don't think they real I don't think they feel like they've got to swim uphill and do a triathlon every week I I just, and that's good. Mm -hmm. You know, a generation ago, they would be called sissies. (laughs) Yeah. But thank God that uh, mentality is literally dying away. And it had to. I mean, Michael DeBakey was working in his 90s. Wow. And you can't tell me his skills were as good as when he was in his 70s, let alone his 50s. And they used to say the surgeon's the captain of the ship in the OR, the surgeon runs everything. I remember when I was starting out, I had a, a minor issue with the chairman of the Department of Surgery, and, and I went up to my department chairman in anesthesia, and he goes, you can't say a word to him, or, this, or you'll be out of a job in five minutes. It wasn't a big deal. And... Um, and I took that to heart. I realized, all right, this is, the real, this is the real world. This is the world we live in. I may not like the guy, but I'm going to be the best clinician I can be in his cases. I'm not going to let him say I'm a lousy anesthesiologist. And over time, uh, we weren't friends, but we were cordial. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget the first time my department chairman was uh, out of town and a patient had needed a hernia repair, and the guy was incredibly sick. And the perfect anesthetic would have been like a, an epidural or spinal with some sedation, and he, he refused to even listen to this. He says, no, they all go to sleep. And um, I talked to the department chairman. She said, uh, I agree with you, um, but what are we going to do? I said, "Well, what if we talk to him together and explain that this is a very unique circumstance?" And um, he listened to my argument, and well, my not my argument, argument, you know, my my postulates. And he asked uh, the attending other what she thought, and she said, "I agree with Dr. Kessler." And he looked at me, and he goes. I'm only going to let you do this because it's you. Oh, wow. And I was scared to death doing the case. (laughs) But it was the right thing to do, and I got the guy out of the OR safely. So thank goodness that's something that I don't want anyone ever have to go through that. But that was the norm 30, 40 years ago and you were, you know, you just did what you were told, the, chair, the surgeon ran a ship, thank goodness that's not the way it is now, and it's actually healthy that, you know, the the nurses, the techs, everybody is taught if you see something out of whack, say something, yeah. that's why we do timeouts now, the, when we first started doing um, safety timeouts before the surgeon is handed a knife, well over 50%, this only started, what, Fifteen years ago, maybe ten, fifteen years ago it's really? relatively new wow, yeah, it's relatively new doing a timeout for surgery is uh-huh. new. yeah, wow, yeah. when I started it in Colorado in two thousand three it wasn't being done That's this fine. is relatively new, and it was taken from the airline industry wow, yes, I, I
2: was just going to say, having worked for it right um, it's handing everybody has the authority.
1: To push the pause button if something is not right, right? Yeah. So what I was going to say. Well, I'm glad you're surprised. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <I> <laughs> because I'm very surprised when the surgeons were told they had to do this. How many? What percentage do you think went along with it?
0: Oh God, that's a good question. I'm going to guess probably twenty, thirty percent.
1: At the most, we got so much. I mean, most of us pushed back a teeny bit, but we realized. Okay, it's it's not a big deal, but you know it was it was like offensive to their their authority, their their everything. Um, some of them like were vehement about it. They weren't going to do it, and finally, the hospital administration would, where the head nurse would come in and say, "If you don't do this, you're not operating anymore." That's how emphatic um, this became, um, and that's kind of typical for this profession. Profession, yeah. Um,
0: you know that actually uh brings to mind um a historical fact dr somowais a austrian i believe ob physician ignatz
1: somowais yes. 1846 there you go <laughs> I'm a history nerd. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So, so so, so, you can correct me when I say
0: some, something wrong here. But he noticed that uh, on the days when they had cadaver lab and um, then the then the physicians would, would go back to the ward that the labor and delivery patients would end up getting infections. And so he surmised that we need to be washing our hands on the days that we go to the cadaver lab and also bet- between patients. And needless to say, he was scorned for that and lost his practice of medicine. And I think he even died in a insane asylum.
1: So a lot of that's correct. And as you know, with clinical trials, they people try, it's not you, everything you said was correct, but you left out something that was important thought process in his, he realized that the midwives who did not have cadaver lab, those patients didn't get purple sepsis. Mm -hmm. Right. So he had a control. Huh? So, Kind of like a modern experience he had a, a control and a variable, and when he instituted you know, hand washing, the mortality rate went from like twenty eight percent to like five percent and he was he was castigated he was like thrown out ridden out of town wow and this is like fifty years before the germ theory wow, which is pretty sad
0: so if you tell a physician to wash their hands <laughs> in the nineteenth century, they will throw you out of the room so yeah, but yeah, so this Historical precedent of so, so do you think that's a resistance to change? What, where do you think that comes from? What does that really mean?
1: I think part of it is cultural, we're all resistant to change, and I think, I think the timeout is a really good uh, example of uh, the good news in this day and age is we have widespread information instantly. Uh, some good, some some of it's good, some of it's bad. But when multiple studies can be done, um, as Tom um, mentioned, this was this didn't come out of thin air. This was taken from the airline industry, where they have a set policy and procedures. You know, the pilots before they take off, they go through a checklist. They actually get out of the plane and walk around, make sure the the wings, uh, the flaps on the wings work. We don't see it, but this this happens and i can personally tell you that um it is embraced by everybody now i like it when the surgeon says let's do a timeout because they used to say i don't want to even you know blah blah." but now it's like it's part of the routine and it like you're you're surprised because you weren't around when it wasn't routine
0: yeah that's the only thing i know
1: right (laughs) so uh god willing in your practice there'll be something that's implemented that will be just as helpful uh as this what's upsetting to everybody in medicine or in any other endeavor is there's still wrong site surgery it still happens it's it's not an it's not a never event which it should be um but at least you know it's a practice which is better than it was before and um So we we make strides. We're touching on a really
2: powerful element. It's a thing that uh, lives in my wheelhouse as a change strategist. But I call it the physiology of change. Uh, And there's an innate thing deep in our psychology. We are resistant to change because we have a almost paralyzing fear of being wrong and uh it we really settle into the comfort of knowing what we control and uh it's a small percentage of humans that really embrace the adventure of not controlling something and open to the discovery of something new so it is a it is a really fascinating dynamic when change is brought in and it requires significant conviction to follow through because it always invites resistance i just say just assume there's going to be resistance when you do this so the conviction the consistency of follow through on it and now all of a sudden you know this topic with the timeout inside of a surgery suite is now culturalized everybody expects it Uh, the resistance is gone. Uh, So now we've taken a protocol or a practice and we've actually developed a culture around it. People's belief systems as a result have shifted um, and new identities are formed around it. So it's a real human journey uh, when you implement change. It's not just like loading a software program. Good point.
1: Very good point.
2: Michael, um, I would love um, getting just a little bit philosophical, but but, uh, one of the things that um, I tend to get on my soapbox about uh, is that if you don't understand the principle behind something, you're not going to be very good at implementing it technically or strategically, you know, and I think... Uh, one of the things that you touched on and uh, Kiev has also touched on is the art side of medicine. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's like always understanding the principles behind something gives you a much richer perspective on it. Um, So what are a couple of principles that you, like if you were going to, I'm, I'm with you when you said, uh, you know, you you don't really hand out advice. I always kind of say, people ask me for advice. I go, no, advice is cheap. Um, I'll offer some counsel, or maybe I'll help you get clear around what is important here, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. Um, What are principles, if you were to list, name several principles that you think are really pertinent to how you live, both personally and professionally, what are those principles? And what would those principles be that you would recommend for um, people starting out in their career in medicine?
1: That's a very good question. Great question. Um, well, the the cheating way out would be to say, I'm a firm believer of the book, The Four Agreements. Oh, that's <laughs> wonderful. Right? <laughs> um number one is be impeccable with your word so like like i said to you earlier i I don't i'm never part of the gossip things i try very very hard not to uh enjoy when people are dissing somebody behind their back in the or like you know everyone i I look i'm i'm human i'm not perfect sure if i know i'm working with somebody i'm not thrilled about i'll sometimes i'll I'll ventilate in the room, but you know, once the, once the patient's in the room and the surgeon's in the room, I'm, I try to be 100% professional. Just remember, I'm here to take care of this person. I can't worry about this, this other issue. Obviously, if it directly affects patient care, that's a different story. Um, that's the first one. Another one is um, always do your best and i have always i've told that to my kids when they were old enough to talk i said i don't care what you do for a living i don't care what you end up doing but do something that you love because if you love it it's not work mm-hmm. and and always do your best yeah. um or at least try you know you may not hit a home run every time but just do your yeah. best that way you at least i've always felt that way um and i've and i felt that I'm giving it my max. Uh, I'm not cutting corners. And I always tell people like, whether somebody's you know, the biggest benefit donor to the hospital or they're homeless, I'm not going to treat them any differently. I'm not going to give them any different medication. They are getting treated exactly the same way, the same way I would treat me or, or my loved ones. That way I never know, that way I never cut corners and I know I'm always doing the quote unquote the right, the right thing by me. And I found that to be invaluable. Um, that's how I got to be where I am. I've always tried my best. Mm. Uh, the other two agreements are don't take anything personally. Mm. <laughs> and that's, that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Professionally, it's not so hard, I have to say. Um, like when the surgeons would do some of the things we, we alluded to earlier, I didn't take that too personally, but when I, the first time I got sued, I took that very personally. And I think that's what threw me over the edge for quite a bit is this person doesn't know me from a hole in the wall and they're, 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 um, trying to make me look like, you know, some, you know, money hungry doctor. And that bothered me a lot. And that ties into the last of the four is Don't assume anything um and every once in a while when and that to me that translates into life a lot you know you think you you think you know how someone or something is going to play out but you're not going to be right all the time and that plays into a lot of what you said before about we hate to be wrong with change we don't want to be wrong if something's changing because uh, that means we're out of our comfort zone um uh, and I think I've prided myself on since I'm in a field where I'm constantly in a situation where I, I need to learn new things, I need to be open-minded, it's kind of allowed me to have the grace of saying to myself, I don't know everything. If I can learn something from anybody, uh, whether it's somebody who's you know cleaning the anesthesia machine to going to a conference... I should, have my, I should be open-minded about it. Um, and I think that's very important for people in general, especially as our, as our culture and society seems to be diverging uh, on a lot of aspects. It would be nice if people listened a little bit and gave each other a little bit of grace and realized nobody has the magic answers and not everybody's right all the time. Obviously, a lot easier said than done. Um, and I'm I'm in my little fishbowl in the nowhere where I have a little control over those things, and I try to translate that into my life as well. I, I'm very I'm very fortunate that um, uh, the kindness and um, deferential um, attitude that I take in the o r i kind of that's how I go through life mm. and um, my wife has a lot of the shares of the same, a lot of the same attributes we live in a uh, gated community of about a thousand homes and it's a small community and we kind of laugh about how certain people are always you know on the uh, the gossip line and we're, we're <laughs> pleasantly removed from it and um so um, it gives me a lot of comfort knowing I can function and not be part of that, but still have a lot of friends there. Michael, um, wow, I uh,
2: my heart feels really full right now. Yeah. Uh, earlier, before I posed that question to you about the principles that guide your life, um, I said... Oh, this man really embraces grace and um, I didn't want to throw that word out to try to evoke a response to it but I really appreciate the fact that you used the word because I it is so clear to me that that is just woven in to the fundamental philosophy of I think how you show up in the world and I myself, I I keep thinking, you know, I've said to Kiev numerous times and I've found myself saying it a lot in professional settings that, you know, the big stuff is always made up of the small stuff. Right. And uh, your approach, the compassion and the humanity and the vulnerability, the way that you show up with your patients, those can seem like small things, but they're so epically huge in the impact that they have um, and uh, yeah I don't need to elaborate no, I don't think
1: any more on that I really appreciate you being with us today Yeah, I'm en- uh, thank you I'm enjoying it very much um,
0: you know Michael what surprises me is I mean we never really communicated like to this level in our work environment and I seriously Wish that we had. I mean, well, it's, it's kind of hard too. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, you, we're, we're all just so busy running right. around constantly. And you're just surrounded by so many just incredible people and you don't know it sometimes.
1: Right. They're, and I mean, an OR is very chaotic. It's like the analogy to an airport is pretty spot on. You know, you got a control tower, you got a nursing station, and they're trying to get this plane out and this plane in. And this OR started and this OR, you know, and who's going to go down to how many rooms, and everybody's just trying to get everything done, and um, I wish more people got it, because life's short, and um, if you don't enjoy what you're doing, then why are you doing it? Yeah,
0: I don't know. Such a good point. A- you know, in my um, personal life, I'm just, even at work really, I'm just trying to slow things down a little bit, and just savor the moment, and see people, and hear people, and build connection even when it's difficult to do because without that what is it that we really have right so yeah
1: actually uh uh, a tech came into the room was giving relief today and i've seen her a couple times i I don't remember her name i mean now i do because i looked at her name badge but she came up to me and she said um I just want to tell you something. I haven't worked with you in a while, but you were like one of the first people that I met. It was like a traveling tech or something. And she just could not have been more complimentary. She goes, you were like the nicest anesthesiologist I've ever met. I'm so thrilled to be in the room with you. And I was, I thanked her. And and, um, I kind of waited my whole life for people to acknowledge that we make a difference. (laughs) Um, I can't. There's certain things I can't teach our colleagues, yeah. but there's certain things that I wish I could let other people you know realize that what we're doing is um, a calling that a lot of a lot of people just don't want to do can't handle and let's try to if if somebody's if 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 somebody's in a vulnerable position. Let them know that you get it. Hmm. Let 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 the family person know that you get it. You're not just we're not technicians. Um, there's a technical side of what we do, but like Tom alluded to, the, the art of it is the part that's unfortunately getting uh, I don't want to say kicked to the side, but it's it's not brought up enough. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with burnout. We're not. We're not technicians, we're not cogs in a wheel. Mm-hmm. But for, you know, the first hundred years of medicine, it was kind of like in the NFL, next person up. All right, you know, next one, next one. All right, this one finished, bring in the next one. It's, we're, we're not, that's not how we survive as, as a culture and as people.
0: You know, Michael, we function a environment which is high stakes and high stress. And right. very big personalities. Right. And it's easy to get triggered. You know, maybe a surgeon that you work with, a colleague that you work with says something to you that kind of like gets a, you know, and you're, you're compelled to react. And what I'm trying to do these days is the more awareness that I develop, the more I question Why is this human being the way that they are? Why are you reacting the way that you are? So if I'm interacting with a colleague and they lose their cool and start to yell and scream, I could do the same thing too. Even even just to demonstrate that I can, to build that boundary. And, and, and And what I find myself doing now is just taking a step back and just saying, okay, don't react And question, why is this person reacting this way? Maybe they're going through something very difficult in their personal life that you're not aware of. And so is it right for you to judge them? Is it right for you to, you know, get back in their face about it? So I just, I'm just taking a step back a little bit. So how is it that you kind of interact with certain triggers in the work environment?
1: Uh, that's a really good question. Trust me. There are many times where my blood was bubbling. And if it, if I didn't have the self-control I did, I'm there's a couple of times I'm surprised I didn't lose it because I came close a couple of times, but I just kept telling myself it's not me. All right. Um, and I've got it. Profi- I've got to take, there's somebody here who's depending on me. I'm going to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I, as I got older and as I got more mature in what I did, I was taking the attitude that you're, you're espousing. Like, what, how can I not just, not just not chime in, how can I mainly try, can I try to diffuse this a little bit? Mm -hmm. You know, what tools do I have? And, um, I have a really good sense of humor. I'm very (laughs) witty and I'm really, um, quick with certain things. I don't know if it's my East Coast upbringing or whatever, or my, you know, my culture. Um, I'll never forget when I first moved to Colorado. Uh, I'm Jewish and I'm from the East Coast. And I was working with a GI doctor who's Jewish and from the East Coast. And, and he was laughing at me when we were talking about uh, to some, a patient and he, he'd been there for about seven or eight years. And he said, let me tell you something. He goes, you and I talk fast and we're very demonstrative. And these people, they're not stupid, but they're gonna talk real slow. <laughs> they just <laughs> they just don't it's 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 not their culture to be in your face talking like lightning, pop, 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 like, like we are. And I thought that was um I laughed about it, but then I, I realized number one, he was right. Number two, it was um over time I kind of realized, all right, let me just Except who I'm talking to, except what I'm dealing with, and, and to what I was just getting back, getting to. If I find that there's a little tense situation in the operating room, usually it diffuses on its own. And once in a while, if I think the tension levels dropped a teeny bit, I'll, I'll try to say something a tiny bit humorous if it's, it's time pro, 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 appropriately. Sometimes you can't say anything. Sometimes you go through the whole case on eggshells. But it's uncomfortable, like the surgeon and the scrub tech get into an argument, something like that. And but you f- it puts the whole OR mood in a you know, in a in an uncomfortable situation. And that's the time where you don't want to let your guard down and get caught up in the emotion and forget there's somebody you're supposed to be taking care of. Hmm. So I always that's. I try to tell myself, no matter how upset I got, I got to try really hard to just just let it go. It's hard to compartmentalize all the time, but I do it at work a lot. Hmm. Uh, and that helps me get through a lot of those potential situations. And because I'm kind of easy to talk with, and I think from the get-go, most of the surgeons I work with you know, like working with me because they they sense that energy. I don't. I don't. I'm not too serious in there. I try to say something. Um, I always tell them every morning. I said, "I'm really happy to work with you. I'm I'm honored to take care of your patients." People like to be complimented. I mean, everybody's quick to to point a finger, especially in, in an environment where everything's got to be done the right way, like in the OR. But if you just let somebody know that they did a great job and Today, like in the, we were in the same-day surgery. We had like 60 patients, some ungodly number. And at the end of the day, I just said out loud, not screaming, but at, to the recovery room nurses, I said, you guys just killed it today. You were great. Thanks so much. And they were like, well, it, it, a lot of it has to do with how you bring your patients out, blah, blah, blah. So it's just, and they thanked me. And, you know, it's I like, I like to recognize people who work really hard to do a good job because I'm not the only one doing it. It makes people smile when you walk in the room and they know, okay, here's, this is some good energy. Like I said, 20, 30 years ago, I'd kind of be embarrassed to talk about it like this, but it's kind of cool. Hmm. Definitely.
2: W- welcome to Grace in Action. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Michael, can, um, can I ask you a rather personal question? Sure. You've mentioned that you've previously been divorced. I've been divorced too, and it's been one of the most difficult things that I've ever gone through.
1: How did it you... It is the most difficult thing I ever went through. Wow.
0: Can I ask, how did you manage to just keep a state of internal balance while going through a very tumultuous time in, in your life while balancing a busy clinical workload?
1: That's a good question. It was very difficult. I had two kids who were in their early teens when I realized my marriage was not sustainable.
0: How long were you guys married for?
1: Legally, twenty-one years, but we were together eighteen. Like the last three were, you know, boxing matches. Um, my first wife was extremely aggressive, assertive. And I rarely, rarely pushed back and challenged anything that happened because um, I didn't want it to blow up in front of my kids because hmm. it usually happened in front of them. Wow. And I would say, please don't do this or say this in front of the kids. It's okay. They can do blah blah blah. You know, I just you know it was it was difficult. So. Yeah. I kind of knew in the back of my mind from the get-go that, I mean, in retrospect, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I'm pretty sure there's some bipolar personality issues there. Uh, major depression and, and, and hyperactivity and you know, yelling and screaming and very difficult to maintain their um, sense of just calm. And I stayed in marriage for my kids. Because I realized if I left, they were going to have to deal with this. And I was having trouble dealing with an woman my own. And I'm an adult. You know, what's a teenager. It's, how are they going to deal with this? And it got to the point where I realized I, I wasn't able to tread the water anymore. I was sinking. And for somehow, for some reason, I just told myself that I'm not going to let this affect what I do when I walk into the hospital. I don't know how I did it, but that's—I kind of said that to myself, not literally, but because one of my one or two of my closest friends, when they knew they knew what was going on, and they said, "You know, we would never know you're going through what you're going through. You you still are, you know, super cool in the OR. You're you're laughing. You're funny, and um, nobody would know that you're going through this incredibly, you know, difficult time. And it, it was difficult." You know i tried to mediate and she says no we're going to we're going we're going to the mats on this it was it was horrible again get, talking about the culture of you know how you had to deal with this back quote unquote back in the day we were um had only x amount of doctors and x amount of people to run all these rooms and um a lot of days that i had a court case the only way i could be in court was if i worked the night before so that i could be off the next day to go to court and that happened at least six times Jeez. in the three years that I – it was horrible. And so I'd be, like, telling my attorney, I was like, I can hardly focus. And he goes, well, what kind of people do you work with? I go, it's, it's take me too long to answer that. But that was the hardest part. And as I alluded to earlier, when you know you want to be a physician, like I knew when I was a little – basically a little boy I, I never failed at anything um, and to be a failure as a parent to be a failure in a marriage was very difficult but when I realized I could barely tread water and my kids were su- were suffering as well I had to I had to make a decision that was you know, life-altering but it was the only way I could get out of this uh, toxicity. It's the best word to use. And it was hell. It was horrible. Uh, but I wasn't going to let it affect my work. I got sick because of it, uh, mentally and physically, <laughs> but I wasn't going to let it affect you know, the people I had to take care of. And I tell people who I know since... The divorce rate is really high, especially in you know the professions that we're in because a lot of people don't understand what we do and the sacrifices that we make. The first thing I tell my colleagues are just tell your kids you love them if you have kids hmm. um, because my ex-wife would tell my kids what a bad person I was, and I would say, please don't do that. They're in their 30s, and they're not the same. They're not scarred. They're not the same. Um, so I tell people, don't blame your kids for any of this. Leave the kids out of it. Tell the kids it wasn't their fault, even if it's not. Even if it's not true, and you can't stand your ex, don't don't diss them in front of your kids. All it does is damage them and hurt them. And um, unfortunately, my kids are living proof of this. And um, so part of me is like, well. Are you glad you got divorced? Yeah. I mean, I had to look out for me. Cause, and then I tried to help them as best as I could. And my, my son, who's wired a little bit like I am, he would every once in a while tell me stories about what his mom would do or say and would break my heart. Um, really nasty things. And he was old enough to know the difference. And it's a shame that people are... She thought she was getting back at me, but all she did was mess them up. Wow! So those are those are the things that I tell people who are going through situation. And yes, it was the worst part of my life, than my divorce. I'm glad I'm not in that in in that environment anymore. Wow!
0: And it sounds like you found a loving relationship that you're currently in, and you sound very happy in it.
1: Beyond, very lucky. Wow!
0: How did you guys meet?
1: um we met by a colleague when i was in denver um she had she had just finished a lousy relationship and i had finished a lousy relationship and one of my colleagues who knew us both an anesthesiologist a woman said there's somebody i want you to meet and i said okay and she said to her, there's somebody I want you to meet. And she said, I'm not interested. I have a nine-year-old daughter. <laughs> I'm done with boys. Um, and I was, she and I were kind of politely persistent. And, and she finally agreed to meet me for lunch. And um, she knew about what we do for a living. And we were supposed to have lunch. And it just so happened that the only time we could have lunch was if you worked the night before.
0: <laughs> yet again, <laughs> yet again.
1: And I called her that morning. I said, I was up all night. She said, "Say no more. I know you don't, you know, we don't have to go out. And I said, no, no, I really want to meet you. And, um, the person who fixed us up will be upset if we cancel. So we met for lunch and the minute she opened the door, I just knew it. I know it sounds corny as hell, but it's like sleepless. Sounds, in, it's like sleepless in Seattle. when he's holds out her hand <laughs> and Meg Ryan gets off the elevator. It, it I just knew it is, is she on your phone there? Um, yeah, she, yes.
0: Oh no. I mean, is, is, is that her photo on your, Oh phone yeah. Soundtrack? Is that her photo? Tennessee?
1: Yes. Sure. Wow. You guys look so happy together. Thank you. It looks genuine. Yeah. She's as pretty inside as she is outside. Wow.
0: How did you learn to trust again? To,
1: Love again. Um, thanks for asking me that question. After my marriage ended, I was in another relationship with somebody who was so distrustful to the point where it, I, I couldn't believe that I had actually... I, people say to me, what were you doing with this person? I said, I jumped into the wrong lifeboat. You know, when the, the ship's sinking, you just jump <laughs> off... Sometimes you jump into the wrong lifeboat. I had to get off the ship, but I jumped into the wrong lifeboat. Um, um, there were innumerable times where, I mean, like you said, th- this person must have had some sort of scarring in her prior li- prior lives, life, whatever. And I would text her and say, I'll be, you know, I'll be done. Like at three o'clock, when are you going to be done? Oh, around 5.30. And at 5.30... I would say, I'm walking to the car. How did you know you're going to be done at 5:32 two hours or ahead of time? You must have finished earlier and been doing something else. Like, first of all, I'm saying, who thinks of this stuff? Constantly, constantly, constantly questioning me about what I did. What was I doing? And I would say to her, Do you want, this is before there was a GoPro? I, I said to her, Do you want me to put a camera on my hat, on my head, and you can f- see what I'm doing all day long and you'll realize I'm just working? I am not in the hallway flirting. I'm not in some closet with doc. I'm not Dr. McDreamy. I am not doing any of the things that you're accusing me of. So I was constantly under the microscope, no matter what I did. And when I ended that relationship, that was the biggest breath of fresh air in quite a while. And my and I told this, these stories to my current wife and, she said because with my first wife i was quiet and quiet and quiet and just put up with it until the, the dike blew and when i left and i realized that's not healthy either so i'm in a loving trusting relationship where first of all my wife trusts me and i trust her and we have a since we've both been through a lot of stuff in our life and scars we have a lot in common and we can relate to a lot of things that we have mutually made us wiser so, when you know you can trust somebody, it feels really, really good. And when you know that you are being trusted, it feels really, really good. I, I guess after it being 180 degrees in one direction to be in, in a totally different mindset, it, it makes it's really easy. I was con- literally constantly under a microscope, and I was like I, I, I said to her, "I don't know what to do to, to get you to trust me." And since I just I don't even remember what she said, but I just realized that I, I was like just it was a you know rhetorical question because there was no answer for her. But when you are you know like it's kind of like the same thing when you work every third night and then you don't have to. You're like oh I can do this <laughs> when you're not uh, under the microscope and you can be with somebody who's warm and trusting and supportive just makes it a lot easier. It makes it just work. Wow, sounds beautiful.
0: Yeah. So the reason that I bring this up is because, um, you know, I got married when I was 28 and then divorced when I was 32. I'm 35 now. And um, I, because of my busy work schedule and residency and training, I didn't feel like I had a complete sense of who I even was. I didn't know myself. Because the only thing that I knew was work and research and tests and that's it. Even, you know, on your time off, you're still doing some work-related function. And so I had no self-awareness. So I then was in a relationship with somebody who was not the best fit for me. And then once I realized that I needed to get out of that relationship, I didn't have the tools to be able to process it in a healthy way or to make sense of it so you don't know who you are and then you go through something difficult and you don't know how to deal with it and i just didn't have the time and if i had the time i didn't have the energy in it and i ended up hurting myself in multiple ways so when we talk about, you know, Q3 call, which really means like you're working 30 hours a week every third day and you're working in between two by the way. I mean, how are you how can we possibly expect you to be a normal functional human being?
1: You can't. You just can't. That's why I'm glad they have well, like I said they have limited hours on what a resident can do, but once like the gloves are off, once you're in private practice, I think uh, as Tom alluded to earlier, um, the culture is slowly changing where people of your age and experience aren't going to deal with it. Not necessarily in militant wise, but it's, it's evolving now. It's evolving. It's not a revolution. It's an evolution. It's evolving that way. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, for somebody who's, been through it it's um it's very welcome hmm. um most of the guys and people who are your age who I've experienced in all sorts of medicine um uh, for the most part seem pretty happy compared to when I was their age hmm. like the the female obgyns who are at our hospital who are in their 30s uh they're totally different than the people I knew 30 years ago. Um, back then it was all still a single private practice. Now there's groups. People take call for each other. It's just a totally different mindset. Um, and it's, it's a real breath of fresh air. Like the, our, the, the colleagues that you and I knew, have known, who are under the age of 40, are um, I like where they're coming from. Medicine's not any easier, but um, they don't want to be, they don't want it to consume their lives. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think some of us struggle with, you know, coming coming off as being weak. And it's a real struggle. And we feel like in certain ways, maybe we're failures. Like I'm, I'm, for example, critical care boarded, and I just don't want to practice it. Because my sanity means I do more you. to me.
1: You couldn't pay me to do that. <laughs> yeah. I was, uh, Tom, Kiava and I talk about it. Um, the, the morbidity of the patients here mm-hmm. and the complex health issues is so intense. Yeah. And I can yeah. speak again from experience. Uh, I worked in Denver for, I don't do open heart surgery. I don't do open heart anesthesia. Um, in the 18 years that I worked, in Denver, and in the 15 months that I've worked here, I've I've taken care of as many patients that needed to go to the ICU or came from the ICU in 15 months. I did in 18 years. It's incredible, incredible, uh, and the patients are just so sick, and it's not their fault. Um, and the surgeons just they just want to do the case, but like we're the ones that have to get them through it. You know they've got a procedure, but some of them get it, but most of them don't. Even the ones that are good, they're like, you know, they're like, oh, you are the anesthesiologist. They're not, they're not belittling us, but they don't. I don't think they get what we think about the stress, the stress from the time you first walk into the room in the ICU, Jesus. and you see all the pumps and the drugs, and you are just going through your mind, how do I avoid the minefield? How do I get this patient back into this room alive? Yeah. Nobody gets it except the people who are doing it.
0: Absolutely right. Um, The minefield analogy, I think, is very relevant here because, especially with what we do, you never know when you're going to step on a landmine, meaning a difficult airway, cardiac arrest, Mm -hmm. and you have to just figure it out on the fly. You know, in, in my last month, I did 12 days in a row, 10 to 12 hour days with no days off in between. And by the time I was done with that 12 day stretch, I mean, I was just physically and mentally just fried. And I just, I'm not normal after that. Mm -hmm. And I can't come home and flip a light switch and just be happy and normal and like engaged and present. I can't, it's not possible for me. It is, it's impossible I'm just trying to just get like enough sleep for those two weeks. Mm -hmm. So that's just the reality of what we do.
1: A lot of my um, colleagues, one of the reasons I left my job in Denver had nothing to do with the clinical aspects of it. It was the way it was run. And we were uh, in a situation where the people made the decisions, started hiring nurse anesthetists and running four rooms with a single doctor, which is the most you can do, I think, with Medicare or whatever, so that we were making more money. But they do not work nights or weekends, and we were working more nights, more weekends, more everything, even people my age who were who've been doing this long enough. And people in their 50s and 60s just said, we're done with this. So it was a, there was a mass exodus from the, peop- the job where I worked. Um, and, in fact, when I was hired here, I, I told them I'm only... Going to work part time and thank goodness they, they approved it so I'm a legal part-time employee, but I can work as much as I want, but i I work four days a week and um, I don't work nights anymore. I initially was going to do OB but I gave that up because I was real I realized after thirty five years I don't want to sleep outside of my house anymore, <laughs> especially. Where I came from, the OB service was very busy. And I'd be up all night. It would take me two to three days to get to recover. Yeah. And that's not healthy no matter what you're doing, let alone taking care of people's lives.
0: Well, you know, Michael, I mean, I'm so impressed by your 36-year history in this, everything that you've gone through, and the fact that you still have so much grace and presence and humility and you provide comfort and humanity for your patients and your colleagues. I mean, it's just incredible to be present
1: with you. Thanks. It's an honor to, to do what we do and to be here. That's a wonderful note to close on. Thanks.
2: Thank you.
0: Well, it was a pleasure to have you here, Michael. I hope uh, to have you back again in the future, if you're willing.
1: It would be an honor. Like I said, at this stage of my life, it's... It's, uh, paying it forward is a, is a blessing. And, uh, sometimes these things pop into my head that happened 20, 30 years ago, and sometimes they're dormant, but under the right, cir- you know, stimulus, you get a response. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I think the younger generation has a lot to learn from you. So thank you so much for You're sharing welcome. that. Likewise. Thanks so much.